Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. Welcome back, guys. It feels so weird and also really good to be back recording with you, Mark. It feels like it's been years. It Honestly, it feels like, I mean, not years, but it definitely feels like it's been months. Happy 2024 to all of our listeners and to you, Bethan, as well. Happy New Year, everybody. Yeah, Happy New Year, Mark. Thank you for your patience whilst you've awaited our return from our mid-season break. Did you have a nice Christmas, Bethan? I did, thank you. It was really good and it was really low-key. We just didn't do too much and genuinely, I'm going to sound very preachy, but I think that's the the key to success is just not put too much pressure on yourselves, not do too much, just just have a nice chilled one. How about you? Similar, really. Pretty chilled out. Uh, didn't go too mad. Same with New Year. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, we're recording this on New Year's Day, in fact, aren't we? So And unlike many people in this country, we're not hungover. We We're didn't not. stay up till one in the morning partying. No, I know. Um, something's gone <laughs> gone wrong here. <laughs> um, but yeah, at least we're having the last laugh today. So um, what have you got for us today then? Well, I really couldn't bring myself to cover anything too disturbing or upsetting this week. Researching a horrific murder was not something I could face putting as part of my Christmas plans. So um, yeah, it's not going to be too too gruesome. We are going to be discussing one of the topics that we love to go back to time and time again. A heist. Woohoo! So the 1983 Brinks mat robbery was the largest UK heist at its time. £26 million worth of gold, diamonds and cash was stolen. I'm sure we've discussed this. Have we done that on a main episode or a Patreon episode or anything like that? I feel like I feel like we've done, Well, we did the... What was that guy's name? John Palmer. Episode yeah. Episode 1, Season 1. Maybe that's we touched what I'm thinking on this. of. I feel like we might have covered this as an actual episode, maybe a Patreon bonus episode, maybe on the main show. I just can't remember. I could not find anything when I was trying to look back. And I was like, I'm sure we have. But maybe we've just talked about it lots and lots. Yeah, it comes up as a point of reference, doesn't it? And Mm -hmm. I think any kind of big heist episodes that we've done, we always refer back to this. And also with some of those big names like John Palmer, Kenneth Noy, any time we've ever had cause to mention them we'll we've probably kind of done a bit of a mini summary of Brinks Matt. yeah that's true and when in, adjusted for inflation that heist saw over a hundred million pounds in today's money worth of gold diamonds and cash um, so over a hundred million pounds when it's kind of adjusted and this is why we still talk about it isn't it because it's that really was epic. That's a huge amount of stuff. And I think that's it? the funny thing, isn't it? Stuff. They were just not expecting what they got. Just random stuff. And they were no, like, oh, what do we do with not this? Not at all. <laughs> Today, the Brinks Matt robbery doesn't even make it into the top five British robberies. I don't mean top five as in like the greatest, but obviously the best. Um, I do obviously mean value. Um, So the Securitas Depot robbery, for example, was higher value. Tamara Eccleston jewellery theft, which you expertly covered. Knightsbridge security deposit robbery was also higher value. But what I would say is that the Brinks Matt heist is the third biggest British robbery when you adjust for inflation. It just wasn't at its time. But as you mentioned before, Mark, what we're going to be discussing this week is actually the largest theft in the UK. And this refers to both the biggest in terms of the original amount stolen and its value today when adjusted for inflation. Before we begin, shall we say a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters that have joined us in the past couple of weeks, maybe sort of the last month or so? I was going to say this is covering us because, uh, yeah, we we think we may have mentioned uh, some of these names before. Some of before, you might get your second shout That's out. always a good thing. Uh, <laughs> shall we alternate and, Ooh, and mix it up a bit? Oh, that sounds like fun. You go first. Emma Utley. Megan Hogg. Lynn Barnes. 
Liz, Josh Peters, Fiona Richardson, Carly Hamilton, Holly Bailey, Michaela Long, Jane, Neil Slade, Witters, Beth Turner, Natasha Alsop, Kelly Dawson, Michelle Ash, Catherine Chamberlain, Karen Moiser, Ruth Hayes, Sarah Adams and, and Joe. Joe. Thank you. <laughs> um, definitely recognise some of those names. I'm sure uh, we have mentioned you before, but yeah, a huge thank you to each and every one of you. And of course, to all of our existing Patreon supporters as well. If you want to jump on the Patreon bandwagon, we've got so much stuff going on over there. We've got our book club, which meets pretty much every three months. Bonus episodes. We do our fortnightly Patreon exclusive podcast, Crime Wave. Over there, there's 30-odd episodes to binge of that, 40-odd episodes uh, that are exclusive to Patreon, bonus episodes, loads going on. So do have a look at it. All you need to do is head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. So I am going to take you back to May the 2nd in 1990. To set the scene a little bit, so far this year, the first episode of Mr Bean had been on telly. Love Mr Bean. I was going to say, I feel like you're a fan of it. Oh, I absolutely. Rowan Atkinson, I think, is one of the all-time greats. I just really love him. I could just never get my head around Mr. Bean. Just a fucking nonce, really, isn't he? So <laughs> that's what I always thought. Oh we just have gosh. a nonce in a bedsit and he doesn't speak. Um, and this is supposed wow. to be a sitcom. I couldn't understand it as an eight-year-old okay. child. I completely disagree with you on that one, but we'll move swiftly on. Um, Princess Eugenie had just been born. And there had even been a 5.1 magnitude earthquake in Shropshire. Wow, that's pretty big for the UK. It was, yeah. Apparently it was felt in Wales and stuff and it was quite a big deal. The Prime Minister at this point was Margaret Thatcher, although we were nearly at the end of her 11 years as Prime Minister. She then came off power in November. I don't know what the right term is. Out of power? Off power? (laughs) Off grid. Off grid. Uh, We had John Major then. I remember we had John Major. Yes. Late 1990. Now we just have 11 prime ministers in one year. Yeah. From an economic point of view, inflation in the UK in May 1990 was 9.4%, which was the highest level for eight years. And it was two years after the housing market had peaked and house price inflation was officially declared as ended, although the effects of this were still being felt. Have you been gobbling up the Financial Times, Bethan, in our two I weeks really off? enjoyed. I really enjoyed looking back at the history of this time because it, it's within our living memory and it's the times that we lived through and I find it really fascinating. Yeah, we always say that, don't we? It doesn't it doesn't sound like it was long ago, but it was. It's thirty plus years ago and yeah, life was so different then and so much has happened since. In May nineteen ninety, I would have probably been just about to try my first solid foods. I'd have been like six, seven months old. In May nineteen ninety, Radio One began twenty four hour FM broadcasting, which was pretty major. And the UK number one at this point was Nothing Compares to You by Sinead O'Connor. And it would be shortly um, Vogue by Madonna. Two very 1990 tracks. So 1990. And what was stolen in today's case feels really old fashioned as well. It was bearer bonds. And I didn't know fully what these were. So I had to do some research to properly understand. Mark, you might be able to better explain this than me. I'm not sure. I've heard of them and I've seen some old episodes of Crime Watch where these have come up. I think they're just like, a, is it a bit like a banker's draft? It's a promise to pay and it's 
it's better than a check because I th- I feel like it's guaranteed, but I, I don't know. Mm, kind of. So a bearer's bond or a bearer's note is a bond. So similar to any other kind of bond where like you put your 10 grand in and you know how much interest you're going to get at the end. So the end product is 10,150, for example. Um, It's issued by a business entity such as a corporation or a government. But the interesting thing is that it differs from more common types of investment securities because it's unregistered. So no records are kept of the owner or the transactions involving ownership. So you still have this end date at which point it will be worth X amount. But whoever physically holds that paper on which the bond is issued is the presumptive owner. So it's a bit like a bank note it's like a piece of cash but with a much much higher value yeah not very secure no so it's it's really useful for investors who would wish to remain anonymous but of course there's not much in the way of proving it was yours if it's lost or stolen so yeah it's a really weird kind of thing like you we don't have them anymore then they're not legal in the uk they're not legal in the usa either i'm not sure about other countries but they were used since like the 1850s or something. A bit like how our money really, like you said, is a promise to pay the value of whatever it says on that bit of money. The lack of registration made them ideal for use in money laundering, tax evasion, etc. Um, so like I said, they're all actually illegal in this country now. And the certificates were issued every week by the Bank of England as a means to manage short-term spending needs. So there was always liquidity within the financial system. The bearer bonds matured after one to six months and they could be freely traded. So, of course, companies nowadays use electronic money transfers. But at this point in 1990, couriers or messengers moved vast sums of money around the City of London in order to ensure that liquidity in the UK financial system by genuinely walking from one place to the other with the bonds in a briefcase and just taking them from place to place. That's just dangerous, isn't it? Because they're just a moving target and it's such an antiquated way of doing things. But I guess computers just weren't sophisticated enough to do it in any other way. No, how else are you going to do it? Yeah. So these messengers were often ex-military personnel who enjoyed the opportunity to walk to and from businesses with those documents. It was kind of the perfect job for them. They could maintain their fitness and they. it was usually men who had come out of the military. The idea for the robbery that we're talking about this week was generated by media reports in January 1990 that a courier had accidentally dropped £4 million, or the equivalent of £10 million in 2021, £4 million worth of bearer bonds on their way to the Bank of England. Can you even imagine getting there and being like, oh God, I've got to tell my boss I've just dropped £4 million. That's a bad day in the office. Just a bit. So... A 23-year-old surveyor had picked up the four certificates of deposit on Throgmorton Street outside the stock exchange. They'd literally just fallen out of the briefcase of this courier. Now, the surveyor was a good, upstanding member of society and actually returned them. He was rewarded with a magnum of Laurent Perrier champagne for his honesty, which I thought was lovely. But not quite four million, is it, really? No. Less honest, however, was an organised crime syndicate who quickly realised they could take full advantage of this. If a courier was mugged, the group would be able to take all the bearer bonds, and then of course they weren't traceable, so they'd have all the money that was donated on them. 
The gang knew that the theft had to appear to be an opportunistic mugging because the bonds would be voided and cancelled if it was ever suspected that it was a heist ordered by an organised crime group. And I thought that was really interesting. So an just an opportunistic mugging, we'll leave them be. But if we know it's organised crime, we can stop them. Surely you just stop them either way. Yeah, that would make sense. Isn't it really odd? But, but that was kind of how it was at the time. I was just going to say that I th- we're sort of, judging things based on 2024 and this this is a long time ago things have moved on so much since then so yeah the way that these would have been handled yeah it would be different back then that kind of creeps me out that you said 2024 it's mad yeah so the group needed to find a way of getting their hands on the bonds without alerting the authorities that this was part of a larger conspiracy And they planned to launder the bonds as quickly as possible in Zurich. They had connections, they had a plan, they knew what they were going to do. It was a slightly drizzly but sunny day on the 2nd of May 1990 and early that morning 58-year-old John Goddard was walking along Nicholas Lane which is an alleyway in the city of London. John Goddard was an employee of financial brokers Shepherds which was a subsidiary of Cater Allen And I found it quite fascinating to see that name because they are a private bank still operating in the United Kingdom. Um, Cater Allen is a subsidiary of Santander UK. I'd never heard of them. Have you not? I've heard of them. in that sphere, yeah, I'd never heard of them. Isn't that weird? Yeah, obviously very small, I would have thought. Yeah, but still going. And I think they've been going, I can't remember when it was actually, I'm going to make up something, so I'm just not going to say. But I've added an image for you here, Mark, a little photo, because I know you love it when I do this. And I'm going to try and describe the area for our listeners. If you've ever been to London, you'll probably be able to imagine what I'm describing. Flanked by tall brick buildings, Nicholas Lane is a narrow one-way road and it's a short road that links the main King William Street to Lombard Street. It's used as a cut-through. It would have felt reasonably safe for John Goddard. I'm sure he would have made this walk numerous times as a messenger, carrying information and documents back and forth. But this quiet side street in the city of London is also filled with doorways and nooks and crannies where someone could wait. How else would you describe the place? It's like, I don't know, it's just really tall and and light brick, isn't it? It's narrow, isn't it? It's just such a narrow... You get a lot of those in London, those Mm -hmm. one-way streets. uh, It almost feels a bit oppressive because you've got high buildings on either side and it's probably only, I don't know, 10, 12 feet wide. So... Yeah, just very typical London. Lots of, like you yeah. say, lots of doorways uh, where people would, you know, piss and take drugs um. and wait for couriers carrying bearer bonds. And this is it. John Gardard was carrying in his briefcase 301 certificates, most of them worth a million pounds each. So the total value of the package he was carrying was £291.9 million. <laughs> that's ridiculous isn't it just bonkers that is just how could how could one person be entrusted with that i know so john left the bank of england just two minutes before and he was due to make his rounds walking to a number of banks and building societies dropping off these bearer bonds as he went round as he was striding along the pathway at around 9 30 a.m john was shocked when a man leapt out in front of him brandishing a knife This was a younger man in his 20s compared with John's 58 years and his weapon terrified him. Sensibly, John Goddard didn't put up a fight. He handed over the briefcase and fled and then called the police. The robber is widely believed to have been a man called Patrick Thomas who was a petty crook from South London. 
Thomas lived on the Turnham Road council estate in Brockley, South London, with his stepsister and her family. He presented himself as merely being an ordinary person on the estate, but behind the scenes he was involved in criminal enterprises such as drug dealing and robbery. At first, it seemed that the operation had gone according to plan. The papers were reporting on what they called a run-of-the-mill mugging, so a bit savage because this would have been really scary for John, but exactly what that crime syndicate was banking on. Police had initially also hoped that the mugging was no more than an accident, which I thought was a bit of a weird way to put it, but they kind of thought maybe they thought the robber would not be able to deal with what they've accidentally nicked, and they might have thought they were just grabbing someone who had a briefcase of cash, so then they'd either discard the certificates or that they'd be anonymously returned. And um, I read that they'd hoped that the robber would read the press reports and kind of go, oh God, it's way more than I thought, and then get rid of the haul. I think that was kind of their hope initially. Behind the scenes, the Bank of England tried to push a narrative to the media that the bonds were worthless, that they were not worth a penny. The Times wrote that the thief was not going to be rich from this. But of course it wasn't true. Whilst the Bank of England had informed financial institutions worldwide of the serial numbers, the bonds could still be cashed. They hadn't been voided. It was a really huge, very worrying theft and they needed the police to work fast. For the crime syndicate, however, things were not going to be as simple as they first thought. The Swiss connection that they had that was going to launder all the money didn't work out. That would have been very quick and dealt with within a matter of days and then the money would have been theirs. But for whatever reason, I've not been able to find out why, it was just a no-go. So they needed to find other options for laundering the bonds. The mafia in New York City became interested since they were already involved in a scheme to launder US bonds in London and so a plan was made. The contact man in the UK was a guy called Keith Cheeseman and he is really interesting just on his own so I hope you'll forgive me but I'm going to go off on an aside about him because I think he's just fascinating. When Keith Cheeseman had a trial for Dunstable Town as a striker he didn't get a place in the team so instead he bought the football club. He then brought footballing legend George Best out of retirement and however, I don't know how, but paid for him to come back to the team. Attendance soared, success seemed assured and Cheeseman was living the high life. The champagne flowed and then he suddenly disappeared and he left thousands of pounds worth of debt in his wake. And loads of people had this same question. How come the boss of football team Dunstable Town was driving a Lamborghini? Well, the answer was that Keith Cheeseman was taking out hundreds of thousands of pounds in loans against false accounts. He basically set out to rob banks because he saw this as a counterbalance to banks robbing everybody else. Kind of like a Robin Hood scenario. He saw the way the upper classes lived and he decided that's what he wanted and that the banks, it was valid to take from the banks because they took from other people. I don't remember Robin Hood driving around in a Lamborghini. Didn't he give it to the poor? (laughs) I mean, but to Cheeseman, he was the poor and he deserved it. (laughs) Yeah, he's a bit of a hero, actually. I mean, he's not because he is a criminal, but he's really fascinating. I love the idea that he was like, oh, don't give me a place on the football team. I'll just buy it then. (laughs) Yeah, and obviously for me, got on gains. Yes. So in 1975, he had been charged with extorting £287,000 and was remanded for a week for that. Um, He'd arrived in court in a silver chauffeur-driven Rolls Royce. He's been described as a people magnet, a quick-fire one-liner, 
People have said that he's the sort of man that once met, never forgotten. Celebrities and royalty wanted to have him at their table and he was really, really loved. When he was caught for the loan fraud in 1977, that massive fraud with Dunstable Town, he was put in prison for six years and he served three years being released on good behaviour. And apparently he absolutely charmed all the prison guards, like the prison, I don't know what the right word is, you know, like the manager of the whole prison. The governor. Governor, yeah. He he genuinely was just such a charmer. He celebrated his release from prison in 1981 with champagne and was soon back to his old habits. He was back in jail in 1983 for three years after being found guilty of duping a bank manager and obtaining money by deception. Once he was told about the heist, Cheeseman went to work. So he sent some of the stolen bonds to a man called Mark Osborne in the US and Mark Osborne then met up with Mafia member Tony DiPiono in a New York bar, which I think is just like the most New York name ever. And Mark Osborne delivered 10 bonds, which were worth a million pounds each. However, DiPiono was actually an FBI agent. Osborne was arrested and he chose to betray his associates and the FBI allegedly recorded their phone conversations. So, yeah, that was that. Um... The syndicate in London soon realised that they also had an informer within that side of things and the City of London police quite quickly began to recover the bonds. The evidence that the police had built up showed that this was a sophisticated plan and so they set up an operation called Operation Starling. The bonds could have been laundered and the money pocketed but the noted serial numbers of the bonds were being looked out for everywhere and soon the police began to recover them. It wasn't long before things started falling apart on both sides of the pond, with informants and undercover agents on both sides of the Atlantic working together. A bond turned up in Northern Ireland, someone else tried to deposit a bond at a NatWest bank in Glasgow. That summer, 80 certificates worth £77 million were recovered during an allegedly routine check at Heathrow Airport on a flight arriving from Dublin. Operation Starling retrieved £80 million worth of bonds in Cyprus and other raids occurred in the Netherlands, Scotland, Singapore and West Germany. A search by US Customs revealed that the package contained £71 million in stolen bonds which the IRA was attempting to trade with Colombian drug barons in exchange for money and narcotics. So this was far-reaching. The bonds were going everywhere. This group were trying their hardest and... They were not able to cash any of them. They were all being caught. And it does show, doesn't it, that we kind of sometimes think of victimless crime potentially, but quite often even things simple, what people would just think is not a problem, but like counterfeiting goods, quite often the money from that will end up funding terrorism, other organised crime, drugs, stuff like that. So it's all sort of linked and yeah, a huge amount of money that would have gone on to cause a lot of uh horrible stuff really this is it it's it's victimless in one way but then when you actually look at it everything is so multifaceted it really isn't i found the apparently routine check at heathrow really really interesting so this was where 77 million pounds worth of the bonds was recovered and three irish men were arrested one of them was a guy called thomas coyle who was a known fence So he'd acquired 80 of the stolen bonds and realising their enormous value, he'd recruited John Gilligan and Jim Danger Byrne to help sell them. Imagine if your middle name was Danger. (laughs) Loved that. It's not a real, real middle name. Although you are setting someone up for a good life. 
Yeah. Yeah, true. I, I like it. Not being able to shift these in Ireland, they devised a plan to sell them to a mafia connection in the US via John Francis Conlon, who had connections to various security agencies and arms dealers, such as Monza Alcazar and Oliver North. The plan failed at the first stage when Thomas Coyle, Anthony Rooney and Edward Dunn were all arrested at Heathrow and Customs stated, we did not know the bonds were coming in, we found them by pure chance. What absolutely bad luck for that gang. Yeah. The bonds were discovered in Rooney's luggage and all three men maintained their innocence. When the case came to trial at Knightsbridge Crown Court, all three were actually released on technicalities. Thomas Coyle later bought a racehorse which he named 77 Mill. I love the audacity of that. In the early morning of the 29th of December 1991, after hearing a scuffle and a bang at her front door, Patrick Thomas's stepsister found her stepbrother lying on the ground with a gunshot wound to the head. And Patrick Thomas died from his injuries while she called for an ambulance. It soon became clear to the police that Thomas was involved in other crimes He had assorted building society accounts with over £150,000 in them and eventually the police linked him to the bonds robbery, although the specifics of this I can't find and I don't think that they've really released what, what evidence they had. Career criminal Jimmy Tippett Jr. stated in his autobiography Born Gangster that Patrick Thomas, so the suspected mugger from Nicholas Lane, showed him the bonds in a toilet cubicle soon after robbing John Goddard which I find a really weird thing to do. Like, what a strange kind of brag. But, you know, if you are if you are hanging out with certain criminals and they're perhaps bigger than you, you may want to show off a little. It's, I mean, it is plausible. They're probably, I don't know, down the pub and, yeah, it's sort of one-upmanship, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And so whilst, like I said before, it's never been proven either way, but he's widely believed to have been the mugger. And But he's died, you know, quite... Less than a year later, he was shot, and that was kind of the end. But everybody's pretty certain he was the mugger. Do we know who killed him? No. No, that's unsolved. That's sad, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like, a bit like you say, though, he's he's not, you, you know, described as a petty criminal in lots of ways, but actually involved in much bigger things. So when you're living that kind of lifestyle, yeah, it's you're on borrowed time, aren't you? So I suppose that end was inevitable for him. Because and the he's mixing were, with the wrong people. Exactly. And the police were investigating his known associates when they were investigating his murder. And there were different criminals it could have been. Um, and that's how they then found out that he also had links to this. And they realised that he was the actual mugger. You know, like the, the, main, the main sort of player of this whole heist at the time. Mm. There could have been rumours out there in in the underworld that he um, was going to turn Queen's evidence and grass everybody in, so uh, he had to go. Yeah, exactly. There's so many different options, isn't there? Yeah. And then Keith Cheeseman was arrested in the UK after a joint investigation by City of London Police and the FBI. He was sentenced to six and a half years in prison, but he managed to flee the country whilst on bail and headed to Spain. He was such a busy boy, so he'd also been involved in another fraud scheme in which he seduced a supervisor at a financial services company, rented her a luxury apartment and then conspired to transfer £8 million into an offshore account and then two were then arrested by the city fraud squad. (laughs) He just, um, yeah, everything he does, he just seems like he's just a nightmare, but also somehow he's like all lovable. (laughs) 
And I, I also, maybe with someone like that, there's clearly a brain there, isn't there? It's all being used for a sort of bad, but if it was used for good, he could have been a really successful businessman, legitimate businessman, or, I don't know, made a difference in some other way. Because these are some quite massive things that he's atop of, you know? This is it. Like, we quite often see this, don't we? There's a lot of stupid criminals, but there's a lot of people where you just think, if only you'd used those skills or your brain in a different way. Do you remember the guy that went on the run and he taught himself how to fly a plane? From yes, just, I do, yeah. Like playing computer games and reading books. Yeah. And you just think, God, you could have done so much with your life. And the people that run these massive sort of drug empires, they've got hundreds, thousands of people working for them. They're really organised and there's, you know, whole layers of management and stuff. And it's run like a proper corporation a lot of the time, but obviously it's all illegal. But yeah, I just sort of think if you if you can be ahead of an organisation like that, yes, it's illegal, then you've got all the skills maybe to be a legitimate head of an organisation that's not a criminal empire. So it's yeah. a shame because they could have still been rich and not ended up in prison, a lot of these people, had they yeah. just followed the right path. But it's not always that easy, is it? I suppose, though, for them, they'll see people who don't get caught and it's well yeah. worth it. No one ever sets out to get caught, do they, if they're mm. running a criminal empire? So after being arrested in Spain by City of London Police and the FBI, Cheeseman was extradited to the US and there he faced charges related to a conspiracy to launder £392 million in stolen bonds, which included the 291.9 or whatever it was million that was from the London um, heist. Cheeseman pled guilty and was sentenced to the maximum term available of six and a half years because he'd attempted to evade justice and because of his criminal past. So they kind of were like, we need to give him the maximum sentence we can. Another key player in this case was a guy called John Trainer. He was a major Irish organised crime figure who was a long-time confidential source for Irish investigative journalist Veronica Guerin but also a prime suspect in her murder, so many people believe that he arranged her 1996 contract killing. Trainer was a central and important figure in the Dublin underworld. He escaped a dispute with criminal associate Martin Cahill in Ireland by moving to England in the late 1980s. There he joined up with his old friend James Dangerburn, the chapper I mentioned earlier, and those two joined up with John Francis Conlon to set up a new venture in which they would attempt to use some of the stolen bonds as collateral investment for a mortgage from a Swiss bank. So using bonds with altered numbers, they managed to gain a £200,000 advance in Geneva, but the bank did send warnings to City of London Police and the Serious Fraud Office. When the courier returned to pick up the rest of the mortgage, the bank told him to wait. So he called Trainer, who was sitting on a street near Bayswater Road in London, and whilst they were on the phone to one another, the police swooped in in both England and Switzerland, so they were both arrested at the same time. Trainer was charged with handling stolen goods and received a seven-year prison sentence and went to jail in July 1990. Quickly, he began planning his escape, and as a reward for good behaviour, he was transferred from HM Prison Wandsworth to High Point in Suffolk, requesting temporary leave to see his family shortly afterwards, but when that was granted in November 1992, he just got on a flight to Dublin and <laughs> escaped. <laughs> Never to be heard of again. Well, no, he was eventually arrested in the Netherlands in 2010. Oh my God, that's 
20 years I later. Know. It was part of a combined operation by the British and Dutch police investigating organised crime across borders. He was then extradited back to the UK to serve the rest of his sentence. Oh, he must have been gutted. Nearly 20 years. Really gutted. Outside, you'd think you've got away with it and they're not going to come looking Mm -hmm. for you anymore. Four others were charged with their involvement in handling the stolen money, but they they were then not actually brought to trial. No evidence was actually presented at at the court so whilst they were arrested and charged there was no actual court case and nothing came of that the police ultimately recovered all but two of the 301 certificates which was pretty impressive to be honest considering just how many there were so yeah i thought it was a really really fascinating case but luckily not too horrific um for christmas time no, I've tried to take it down the dark corner by saying that they're funding terrorism and ruining people's lives with drugs. But really, you know, a lot of that money wouldn't have ended up like that. It was spent on living a champagne lifestyle, villas in Mallorca and all of that. So I don't know, it's hard, isn't it? Because they're almost anti-heroes, certainly in this country, I think. we yeah. Because we've grown up hearing about the, the Brinks-Matt robbery and the great, the great train, train robbery. robbers that yeah, they even the, got the word great in the name i know and it, they're sort of like deified really so yeah it's difficult i think we yeah having watched films like the italian job you just applaud what these people have achieved actually but yeah it's um i don't know i don't know if everybody else feels the same but yeah there's always an element of me that thinks wow amazing well done and i hope they get away with it but actually yeah they shouldn't because it is a crime obviously and I'm really, I'm, I'm similar to you. I do think like, oh, it's quite a, um, I don't know, like a quite attractive kind of idea of these, these robbers, these men, and they probably would be wearing their suits because it was back in the day and gentlemen thieves sorts of things. But actually, no, it, it's still not any good. And it makes me really happy then when I find out the police were working in these joint investigations, they all swooped at the same time and all of these really, again, a bit like a film and quite cool things that mm. happened. All but two of the bonds. That's really amazing to recover that. When you think of, for example, the Great Train Robbery, how much of that was recovered and Brinks Matt, mm. how much was recovered? Very little. I wonder what happened to those two unrecovered bonds and who ended up with those. They must have been the first couple to be cashed. Yeah, they probably deserved having those, to be fair. <laughs> they probably didn't, Mark. <laughs> well, probably not, but I just... I just sort of think this was a lot of work and a lot of effort. And I, I like to think that somebody was out there enjoying mm-hmm. their ill-gotten gains. And maybe a bit they of me still hopes are. that some of it went to Patrick Thomas because I know yeah. he died and he was a criminal anyway, but he was the one who actually did the, yeah. the knife brandishing and the, the getting. Hmm. Maybe. There were a couple of elements to this case which I thought were really interesting that I wanted to share. They don't fully relate to the case, but um, they kind of cropped up. So... One side note to the case was that a headless and handless corpse was found in a Sussex lay-by in 1991 and some people at the time believed that this was Keith Cheeseman because his victim said it would be a fitting end to him if he was, you know, if he'd been killed and his head was chopped off and this was when he'd kind of gone missing, he'd fled. Others believed it was his way of faking his own death. Um however he was actually just he wasn't dead it wasn't him it was actually nothing to do with him either he was sunning himself next to a swimming pool in Tenerife at the time that this was found but the papers really quite quickly latched onto 
the guy who's fled and this at the same time. The headless corpse has never been identified and it's really sad. So there's a gravestone without a name on it in a quiet cemetery surrounded by trees, but the person is just never, never been identified. Theories about this person and their murder range from London gangsters to East German fraudsters, construction workers, and the case became even stranger still when police discovered that the body had been dressed after death in a shirt and trousers that actually belonged to someone else. So the body was found on October the 11th, 1991, in Broxmead Lane in Sussex. The police knew their first port of call was to identify the remains and also to see if there was any evidence to suggest who had dumped this in the lay-by, but the body was found in the middle of kind of nowhere. There were no nearby houses, no frequently passing traffic, so that kind of quickly drew a blank. Despite extensive investigations, the inquiry went unfinished. It lay dormant for years until new evidence was uncovered. So this was when the case was looked at afresh in 2008 and police got a full DNA profile from the body after exhuming the remains. Fresh analysis using the latest technology revealed that the victim was 30 to 40 years old, probably somewhere between 5 foot 6 and 5 foot 8. And it was at this point that they realised that the clothes had belonged to someone else. Using cutting-edge forensic tools not available in 1991, the investigative team were able to establish that the victim had a link to Bavaria. So the police went to Germany, they put out appeals for information. But despite three trips to the country, including another one, kind of the last one, which was in 2011, the identity of the torso remained a mystery. A Sussex police spokesman said, This is still an unsolved murder investigation and we are ready to follow up any new lines of inquiry. We are committed to identifying the victim, establishing what happened to him and bringing the offenders to justice if at all possible. We will do everything we can to ensure that happens. And I thought it was just really heartbreaking. We don't have an answer. It's not a huge link to our episode, but it was because the media really tried to link it to Cheeseman. Was it him? Had he tried to fake his own death? Was he, you know, was he responsible for this person? And there was no evidence whatsoever that he was. Just timing. And what what can you, I mean, I suppose you can, and they did get a DNA profile, but that's all you can do. You can't, if if that's not going to come up as a match on the database, then you just, you're never going to identify the remains. Because what they've done, haven't they, when they found bodies before and there is a skull, they've been able to reconstruct what that person would have looked like facially. And they use clay and different things to literally reconstruct their face and mm-hmm. that might then you know be released to the media for people to yeah and people might say that looks they a might bit recognize like them yeah somebody like yeah somebody who my brother who went missing or whatever it mm-hmm. might be so but when it's a headless corpse and handless just, yeah and handless yeah you just on hide into nowhere and that is really sad and it's sad then that that body was exhumed later you know 2008 or whenever it was and that that still yielded no results mm. And then the other sort of link as well is I mentioned earlier about the contract killing of Veronica Guerin. So she was an Irish investigative journalist. She was born in Dublin, was an athlete in school. She later played on the Irish national teams for both association football and basketball. After studying accountancy, she ran a public relations firm for seven years. She worked then as an election agent and then she became a reporter in 1990. In 1994, she began writing articles about the Irish criminal underworld for the Sunday Independent, which just straight away, it just sounds dangerous, doesn't it? It does, yeah. 
Using her accountancy knowledge to trace the proceeds of illegal activity, she would use street names for her informants to avoid libel laws in Ireland. Veronica really wanted to write with first-hand information, so she would investigate a story directly to the source with very little regard for her own personal safety. She built close relationships with both the legitimate authorities but also with criminals. And it actually has been said, which I think is, is real testament to her, that both sides respected her diligence because she would provide proper, truthful, honest, highly detailed information. But of course, if you cover illegal activities, the people involved don't want you to give that much good information in that great detail, do they? So when Veronica began to cover drug dealers and gained information from convicted drugs criminal John Trainer, who we discussed earlier, she started to receive numerous death threats. The first violence against her occurred in October 1994 when two shots were fired into her home after her story on murdered crime kingpin Martin Cahill was published. And after writing an article on Jerry the Monk Hutch, she answered her door in January 1995 to a man pointing a revolver at her head. Luckily for her, the gunman missed and she ended up being shot in the leg, but at least it, you know. How did he even miss that as well? I guess she's tried to slam the door on him, fled, and yeah, I don't think he's kind of aimed at her head and then as he's fired, pointed down. But I think, yeah, she must have tried to like slam the door or something. In September 1995, convicted criminal John Gilligan, so that's John Trainer's boss, attacked Veronica when she confronted him about his lavish lifestyle with no source of income. He would call her at her home. He later called and threatened to kidnap and rape her son. He also threatened to kill her if she ever wrote anything else about him. Even with the threats that she was facing, this is just a couple of examples of what she faced, Veronica vowed to continue her investigations. Independent newspapers installed a security system to protect her. The Garda gave her a 24-hour escort, but she wasn't the biggest fan of that because obviously it would get in the way of her talking to the criminals. In 1996, after pressing charges for assault against John Gilligan, Veronica was ambushed and fatally shot in her car while she was waiting at a traffic light. So on the evening of the 25th of June 1996, unaware that she was being followed, Veronica was shot six times fatally by one of two men sitting on a motorbike that had pulled up next to her car. The shooting caused national outrage in Ireland. Investigations into her death led to a number of arrests and convictions. Of the men charged and even convicted for the shooting, only one, Brian Meehan, is actually currently serving a life sentence for his role in the murder because the others either had charges dropped or convictions overturned. It kind of made me really sad when I saw about this woman. Um, She was hell-bent on reporting what she thought was really important to make public, but that was, of course, so dangerous and it was the reason that she was then killed. Yeah, so dangerous the work that she was undertaking, so brave of her to pursue the lines of inquiries into drug gangs and all of that, knowing that, I don't know, that that her life was in danger, but she carried on because that was more important. It's just just sad. It's incredible, isn't it? It is, but isn't it just so sad? However, what I would say is that in an incredible legacy, the investigation into her death resulted in 150, well, over 150 other arrests and convictions, as well as seizures of drugs and arms, as well as, of course, the convictions, although a couple were overturned, there's only one that stayed, but as well as those. And drug crime in Ireland dropped 15% in the following 12 months. Wow. So she did have 
a legacy of not only her incredible investigative journalism, but what what her investigative journalism had done and, and the investigation then managed to unearth. So there's also two films that have been made about her, which I thought was really amazing to finish on. So there's one called When the Sky Falls, which was made in the year 2000, and one called Veronica Guerin, which was made in 2003. So I thought, I, you know, I have to try and finish on something nice. I couldn't really, but... Yeah, I mean, it's tenuous, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, no, that is, because there is a legacy there, which is important, and she's remembered through films and things like that that will last forever. So, yeah, it's um, somebody for us to look up to, isn't it, really? So there we go. I... I thought it was a really fascinating heist and um, it still boggles my mind that these couriers were walking from the city, you know, from the Stock Exchange or from the Bank of England to the building societies or vice versa with 300, you know, nearly 300 million Yeah, in a briefcase. I mean, we were a civilised society back in the 80s. This wasn't 100 years ago when pubs had, to have pictures on the signs because people couldn't read it was normal back then and people are walking around central london with yeah hundreds of millions of pounds that is just ridiculous just mad even one of those bonds to walk along with yeah i'd be terrified no, no wonder <laughs> so, yeah not, no wonder they're not used anymore because they are just yeah. i mean they're so uh, susceptible to money laundering and all of that but yeah mm-hmm. just from a um, security point of view they're just not safe in any way so yeah, it yeah. does make sense that they've stopped. But yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, you know, a huge robbery, but amazing work from the police to recover all bar mm-hmm. two of those 301 bonds. All bar bonds. two, yeah. Yeah, or 299, Crazy. however many it was, yeah. It was 301, but it, it equated to 291.9 or 292.9 or something. Yeah, it was yeah. absolutely mad. Crazy. Well, yeah, that was a much more palatable uh, return to season 10 for us. Get us ready for next week. (laughs) Yeah, get us ready for next week. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but it won't be uh, anything near as palatable as that. So Mm -hmm. keep your eyes and ears peeled for that. There we go. But it's been so nice being back. Um, I feel like we probably should have used our break to do more, but we've had, I've just really enjoyed having a little bit of a break and it's been good. But it is nice to be back. It is great to be back. And we wish you all uh, a happy and healthy 2024. And Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for your continued support. And we'll be here week in, week out with with a new episode for you. So we'll see you next week. See you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.